0: You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. All right, may be seated. All right. This morning we got Redemption Hill Kids for kids ages two to four. So you could go right over there to Miss Erica. She's standing there. Uh, if, kids, you're in service, if it's helpful for you, we have a bunch of totes uh, that are just in the hallway right over there. There's also kids' sermon notes. If that serves you, you can grab those. There's a bunch of stuff in there. You can color, draw the sermon notes. If you, find those ser- if you fill out those sermon notes and you come to me afterwards, I might have something for you, kids. Um, so that's the teaser for you. I'm going to commend something to you um, before I begin, and it's this Bible study, Esther, the Hidden Hand of God. It's, it's pitched as a women's study, but I assure you it is gender neutral, uh, men and women. As we've seen from the book of Esther, this isn't just for women because Esther's a woman and we named the book after her, but it's for all of us to learn. And so if you want to do a little more study on the book of Esther, I commend this to you. It's from the Flourish Bible study, Esther, the Hidden Hand of God. Um, so if you're so inclined, grab that. It's excellent. I've been going through it as we've been kind of trekking along in our, in our sermon series. So here we go. Um, I had Rob read Esther 6, but in reality we're going through Esther 5, 6, and 7. And so our sermon series, as you may know, is uh, the unspoken providence of God or unspoken providence. And the big idea is God is at work even when God is never mentioned. I hope that a result of this sermon series and of today's sermon is that, that you actually have a bigger vision of who God is. While at the same time, you've got this vision of who God is, you know that God is near and he is, at, he is at work. And so one of the purposes of this sermon, and every sermon has a, like a purpose, right? I'm trying to teach, I'm trying to show you something, trying to help you apply. One of the purposes of this sermon is to help you see that bigger vision of who God is as he is at work in your life we obviously see that. We've been seeing that in the book of Esther. As I said, we'll be going through chapters 5 to 7. And the reason is going to become apparent why I've taken this in one big chunk. Um, In these chapters, you're going to see many reversals and ironies. I'm going to try to point them out along the way. And the title of this message is God Will Prevail. God Will Prevail. The sermon... This sermon answers the question to a sermon from two weeks ago, which I put into a question, which was this, will God prevail? (laughs) You might remember that we're left kind of wondering, like, what's going to happen to our beloved characters, Esther and Mordecai. We've got a Haman who just wants to annihilate all the people of God, all the Jews. What's going on? How could this happen? Will God prevail? And today we're beginning to see an answer. just so you know, we'll be going through the book of Esther for a couple more weeks, and then we're going to slow way down, way down. We're going to be talking like a verse at a time going through the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached. So, got a couple more weeks in Esther, and then the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to be going really slow. I mean, you guys remember Ephesians 1, that kind of slow, maybe even slower. And so... Um, Just so you know, that's coming down the pike here. So let me pray, and then let's get into our text. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the great privilege for us to come together, to gather, to sing praise to you, to look at your word, to fellowship, um, to, to celebrate the Lord's table together. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity, and we want to see your name glorified, but we also want to be instructed by your word. So by the power of the Spirit, I pray that you would instruct our minds and our hearts, from Esther 5 through 7. I pray this in the only name that we can pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel, Old Testament, we read about the great uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. He was the, the king of the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire predates the Persian Empire, which is what we're in in the book of Esther, right? In both books, we see some similarities we read about how the people of God are in danger because of wicked rulers. The significant difference, however, between Daniel and Esther is that God, in the book of Daniel, is overtly at work. Like, you can't miss God and Daniel. It's just right there. He's mentioned, they pray to Daniel, people, or people fast uh, to God, people pray to God. You can't miss that. In Esther, God is not mentioned, as you know, but his fingerprints are apparent. His fingerprints are apparent. Since the first sermon in this series, I've, I've been calling this the providence of God. As a reminder, providence is the governing power of God that oversees his creation. God created the world, so he's overseeing his creation, and he is at work in his creation. Part of, part of what we need to understand about the providence of God is not some big theological idea. It actually has implications for your everyday life. God is at work in his creation, and certainly he's at work in the crown jewel of his creation, man and woman who are made in his image. In particular, the providence is God working out the redemption of humanity, which is what we get a little picture of in the book of Esther. Like, going back to chapter 4, like, will the people of God be redeemed? Will that actually happen? We're getting a picture of the greatest storyline of Scripture. It's through the acts of God that we see God speaking in the book of Esther. God does preserve his people. God does fulfill all of his promises. Not because we are faithful to utter the name of God, but because he is faithful even when incompetence and resistance exist. God is still faithful. The tension between the people of God and ruling authorities in the book of Daniel and the book of Esther as you may know, dominates all of the Bible, right? We can go back to Israel's time in slavery in Egypt, then we can fast forward to the book of Acts where we see the people of God constantly being persecuted. We certainly can go through church history where we see God's people constantly persecuted. We read story after story of Christians suffering and being killed for their faith in God. The book of Esther is a sobering reminder that in this world... There is a battle between good and evil, and sometimes the faces of evil are those who are in authority. But here's the deal. Even though you have earthly authorities, good and bad, there is one who has the ultimate authority over this world and over the entire universe. We have seen in Esther that King Ashuerus thinks he has the ultimate authority. Like, that's what he thinks. And Haman thinks he's like right after him of one who has ultimate authority. But in reality, I mean, you can quickly apply this to how you think about your everyday rulers and authorities. But the reality is the God of Esther and Mordecai has all the power. They're the ones who. God is the one who has all the power. I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to rail against wicked rulers, right? I want to make the point over and over and over again, like, look at Haman. Like, look at him. (laughs) Um, I was told this story um, by Sarah Wetzel, actually. And I didn't know this, a little tidbit. In Jewish synagogues, you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, when the story of Esther is brought up, and taught, and the name of Haman is mentioned, like the whole crowd boos, you know, Haman, boo, I mean, we could could try to incorporate that this morning if you want, my guess is some of you are not accustomed to, you know, interaction, but you kind of see why, Haman, boo, get rid of him, because he's the wicked ruler, right, and over and over, they just want to kind of rail against him, you kind of see why. I mean, even also look at the derelict leadership of King Ashuerus. Like, did you know that throughout the entire book of Esther, King Ashuerus never makes a decision for himself? Never once. And yet he is supposedly the most powerful ruler in the entire known world. He's always deferring to someone else. Like, what a coward. What a weak leader. And here lies the temptation when reading the book of Esther. A person might obsess over the wickedness of leaders and begin to make contemporary connections, right? You know, you read the book of Esther, you're like, ooh, can't look around. That's the temptation, but here's the deal. We can't miss what God is doing between chapters 1 to 10. The book of Esther is ultimately about God. God. We want to walk away from the book of Esther, not with a disdain for those who are in authority, because we are called to honor those in authority, right? But we want a bigger vision of God, a bigger vision of what God is doing. I think chapters 5 to 7 help us to see a sovereign God who is above all earthly rulers and authorities. We read about a God who takes great care to see his plan and purposes fulfilled. And we see God, who is at work in individuals, in particular, Esther and Mordecai. These individuals, as we've seen, are very flawed, extremely flawed. I was talking with Shelby earlier today, just about that fact uh, right before service. Like These people are completely flawed, and yet God uses them. And that's really humbling. Because I love you all, but you're all flawed. I'm flawed. Yet God uses us, he uses you. He's using Esther and Mordecai and he grows them. We see them kind of growing up in the faith and they're they're growing to have a bigger vision of God. For you, every time you see God break and I hope your vision of who God is and your understanding of God continues to grow to increase. And may all that lead you to worship. Now, do you remember the money line from last week? If you were here, I said, this is the money line for the book of Esther. Mordecai and Esther were exchanging notes, and Mordecai was urging Esther to to plead to the king on behalf of the people of God, right? But they both knew that going before the king without being summoned meant to risk Esther's life. She might die, but Mordecai says to Esther in chapter four, verse 14, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Like, Maybe, just maybe, Esther, God has you here in this time, in this place, in this position for a particular reason. And that particular reason is to see the people of God redeemed from the hand of Haman. Maybe, Esther, that's you. And then, in a courageous response, Esther says to Mordecai, I will go to the king. I'm going to do it. You're right. Though it is against the law, the Persian law, and if I perish... I perish. Esther is willing to die, sacrifice her life in an attempt to save her people, to be used by God to see the people of God saved. After these words, right, after these words, it's last week, chapter 4, the curtains fall and like the scene is over. We're left wondering, okay, sounds like she's going to go before the king, but will she actually survive? If you're watching a movie, you're left wondering what is going to happen to Esther. What is going to happen to the people of God? And before we raise the curtain on the next scene, I'm going to try to explain how I'm going to approach these particular chapters. So the curtain's down. Okay, we've got three chapters. How are you going to navigate this, Sean? Because I usually don't preach multiple chapters in one sermon. In chapters 5 to 7, a lot is going on in a condensed amount of time for perspective the book of Esther opens in the third year, the third year that King Ashuerus was ruler, right? So he's been ruler for three years. In chapter five, where we're at right now, we are in the twelfth year of King Ashuerus' reign. So nine years have passed between chapter one and chapter five. It's a long time. But now in three chapters, only two days will pass. Only two. In these two days, the camera stops to focus on specific events. And we're going to see several comedic reversals. Not only is the book of Esther, uh, maybe cause you to boo Haman, it's actually meant to cause you to laugh. Because it's like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. Because we see so many comedic reversals reversals in the book of Esther, in particular in these three chapters. We're going to see the providential hand of God at work over and over again. I'm going to point out these reversals as we go along. And we're going to look at the events recorded in these chapters and you would be excused if you responded, no way that could ever happen. Like You'd be excused if you are like, yeah, right. There's no way all these coincidences could come together. And the impulse to wonder how the events come together is fine, but the events show you that without God, you are reading a Hollywood script. Without God, you are reading a Hollywood script. Like, I, I, maybe there is a movie about the book of Esther. I don't know, but I could easily put this in and be like, whoa, this is kind of entertaining. But with God, you see the hand of God all over. With God, this makes sense. Your view of God's sovereignty and providence should increase. So let's, we're going to look at each scene. I've, I divided these chapters as if you were watching a movie unfold, and so I put it on the screen for you. We've got chapter 5, and there's scene 1. We're like in the king's throne room. That's where we're going to start this morning. In this uh, chapter 5, scene 2, we've got this first banquet that, uh, by the king. The next scene of chapter 5 is from the banquet or the feast to home, in particular Haman. And then the curtains fall and the curtains raise. Now we're in the king's bedroom. Don't worry, it's rated G. And then scene two of chapter three, we've got a ride in the city. I'm going to explain that. And then Haman's home and then the second feast of the queen. I'm going to lay it out like that. Again, like the scenes in these chapters, I'll be moving quickly, but I will slow down to identify those providential reversals. Chapter five begins with Esther putting on her royal robes. She is queen, right? But now she is acting like a queen. We weren't sure in chapters 1 to 4 who we had in Esther, but something has shifted. She is the queen. She is not approaching King Ashawaris as his doll to be shown off, but she is approaching the, the king as the queen of Persia. You get the sense she takes the title seriously. This is a massive change in Esther's demeanor. In chapter 5, scene 1, we see the courage and grit in Esther. Esther knows death is a real possibility, but she also knows the king. She might die, but she knows the king, knows him well enough. She knows what it takes, what it will take to receive favor from the king. Remember, Esther acts as a mediator on behalf of God's people. She knows what's at stake. And then we read in verses 1 and 2, And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Here we identify the first of several reversals in the book of Esther when Queen Vashti broke the law, right, going back to Esther one and two, when she broke the law, she was dismissed. However, when Esther violates Persian law, there is mercy. Mercy is not a word we would use or associate with King Ahasuerus. Like, show me where in the Book of Esther, other than up to this point, up to the right here, where he has been merciful but now we see it for some reason. Now, you might wonder, how is God involved in the scene? Well, it takes makes more sense if you remember how God dealt with, maybe say, Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. You might remember the story where Aaron and Moses come to Pharaoh over and over, and they say, let my people go because they were enslaved in Egypt, and all these plagues are thrown down upon Pharaoh. But we read this in Exodus 9.12, that as God, who is ultimately the one, at work in the heart of Pharaoh. So we can say that King Asherah is indeed extending mercy to Queen Esther, but behind the scenes is the providential hand of God. It was the providence of God that dismissed Vashti and put Esther into position. Now we see the providence of God right here. She could have died, but the king extended the scepter. And here's the unspoken elephant in the room that is the throne room, right? When the king sees Esther, he knows there's something pressing on her mind and on her heart. The king knows he has the authority to punish the queen for breaking the law. No one's naive to what the Persian law says here. The queen knows, the king knows. The queen would not approach the throne if it were not, an emergency. So the king asks Esther, and this is verse 3 of chapter 5, what is your request? It shall be given to you, even half of my kingdom. Now, the king was not giving Esther half of the kingdom. <laughs> um, that was more of just exaggerating. So what do you need? Like, try me. Something's on your mind. So what is it? But I think the question seems genuine. He wants to know what is on the mind of the queen. But Esther does not immediately let the cat out of the bag. Which is interesting. It's like, why? Like, you have his attention. Now seems to be the moment. Again, Esther knows who she is dealing with. We see in Esther a a patient mediator. So how does she respond? She invites the king and the king's right-hand man, Haman. Boo! No? All right. Thank you. Haman to another banquet. The king accepts the invitation, and he immediately sends for for Haman. I said last week that Esther, the person, is growing up, right? She's growing up. That's what we see here. Last week, we saw that she chose her Jewish identity over her Persian identity, and now she is acting like a shrewd and wise queen. Uh, Commentator Karen Jobes says this, about Esther. Esther seems, uh, excuse me, Esther assumes the dignity and power of her royal position only after she claims her true identity as a woman of God. As I teased out last week, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, how has that transformed your life in meaningful ways? When God has broken in on your life, just like he broke in on Esther's life, how has that transformed your, your walk, how you think about God, what you do, Right? In her effort to see the people of God set free from genocide, Esther made a plan, and she is working her plan. I I could not stress enough that Esther is an example of a person who is just growing in her relationship with God. She looks much different than the Esther we saw in chapter 1. And that that should give us much courage in our walk with God. Right? Look at what God is doing in and through her. And it's before the throne of the most powerful person in the world where we see Esther's true beauty. Like, what is Esther's true beauty in all this, right? We know why she was made queen. She's easy on the eyes for the king. Let's not be naive about that. But what do we really see in Esther? A courage that is filled with faith. Here's a potential application point for you. What is your understanding of courage, right? Is it you fighting a grizzly bear with a pocket knife, right? Like, the, not, not the sharp one, but the dull one, right? Is that courage? Is it courageous for an athlete to uh, dominate a basketball game while battling the flu? Michael Jordan, June 11th, 1997, against Utah, Utah Jazz in the playoffs, right? Is that courageous? when I was a kid, that seemed really courageous. Or is the accurate measure of courage, at least from a Christian perspective, the willingness to follow God in the face of potential death? I will choose the last example as the starting point to understand courage. Okay, the curtain comes up on the throne room, and the stage crew comes out from behind the curtain to change the scene. So now we're in chapter 5, scene 2. We've got Esther's first banquet. As the curtain comes up in the second scene of chapter 5, we see the king, we see the queen, we see Haman reclining, relaxing, eating, and drinking. And the king knows Esther did not approach his throne to ask him to a party, right? There's more going on. So once again, he inquires, what is your request? What do you want, Esther? Even half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled but Esther continues to hold her cards close to the chest. Instead of sharing her burden, Esther invites the king and Haman to a second feast. Now all of this seems odd. What is, what is Esther doing? Why all the cloak and dagger? Why all the smoke and mirrors? Uh, theologian and commentator Christopher Ashe helps us to see what's going on. Here's what he says, and I think this is really insightful to help us understand what is going on between the beginning of chapter 5 and the end of chapter 7. By the time the king comes to the next banquet, he will have come to two banquets and promised three times to do what Esther asked. He, can, he cannot now deny her without losing face. And face is all the empire can offer. It's all the Persian empire can offer. Dare I say, it seems Esther is engaging in a little bit of politics. Right? Like, I'm just being honest here. That's kind of what's going on. She's gauging in some politics, a little behind-the-scenes, backroom conversations, making deals over here, whatever it took. But we see her, she had a plan, and she's working the plan, and she knows the king. Haman does not know she's a Jew. need to remember that. Haman does not realize she is a Jew, and Esther is working her plan to perfection, after the king and Haman agree uh, to the second feast, again, the curtains now come down and we have another scene change. Chapter 5, scene 3, from the palace to home. And it's talking about Haman here. When the curtain comes down on scene 3 of chapter 5, we read about Haman walking home. It says in our text that Haman had a joyful and glad heart. He left the feast and he was in a great mood. He was in a great mood conversation the wine he was with the king he was with the queen who can say that like that, that 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 maybe requires some storytelling later on right a little bit of name dropping he is happy as Haman walks out of the king's gate he sees Mordecai and Mordecai once again did not bow down to Haman and guess what Haman is livid again The dude, it seems, needs to seek a therapist or find some anger management class. We find him always angry. Haman is instantly angry, but somehow he restrains his anger. Now, I want you to put a pin in this particular scene because in the last scene of chapter seven, we're going to see another significant reversal that connects with Haman's or Mordecai's unwillingness to bow. Haman arrives at home, right? And he gathers his wife and his friends. He begins to boast about his time with the king and the queen, right? He tells them about the next banquet. And then we receive insight into the heart of Haman. Haman says, this is chapter 5, verse 13. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. Like he's just spent time with the king and the queen. Eating, feasting, drinking. But none of that matters to him so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. What insight that is to the heart of Haman. Haman is the second most powerful person in the known world. The king has given him tremendous authority and power. Yet what sets him off? He is belligerent because one person, just one person that we read of will not bow down. Haman's reason for living is to be worshipped by people. But it only takes one defiant person to set him into a rage. Another good quote from Pastor Ian DeGuid. Haman is a case study in what happens in our hearts when our idols are challenged. What was Haman's idol? He wants to be worshipped, and that's being challenged. Now, all of a sudden, that's doing something in his heart. DeGuid continues, He has made public recognition his idol, and the result was that as long as he was receiving adoration, excuse me, he felt great. However, when the achievement of his goal was challenged, he responded by lashing out in rage and seeking to feed his idol through boasting. There was a void at the center of his life that no amount of success could fill. It's really insightful as we think about our own hearts. And this is a bit of the heart check for all of us, right? Your heart is constantly being challenged to worship idols, someone other than the true God. You're not Haman, right? But human nature tends to be consistent. Suppose you are a Christian. Right? Life's purpose is to orientate the heart toward God. Only God can satisfy the heart. If you're not a Christian, you see that you're kind of like Haman. right? The idols of your heart constantly let you down, sometimes leading you to anger and disappointment. Haman's anger leads him to end up taking the advice of his wife. And what does his wife say to Haman? Just, just kill off Mordecai. Just be done with it. Can we move on, please? And really, do you know the only thing that could have helped Haman? An encounter with the living God. That was his only hope. That was the only hope he had to remedy what was missing in his heart. An encounter with the living God. Without God, he is helpless and he is just angry. Now the curtains fall on the final scene of chapter 5, scene 3 with Haman's anger abating because of the thought of murdering Mordecai. Again, another insight into his heart. Like, what makes him feel good at night? Murdering someone. That's a lot of wickedness right there. You're going to want to put another pin at the end of chapter 5 because the gallows made for Mordecai is to be 50 cubits high, which is an absurd height. An absurd height that is going to be made to make a point and a spectacle It's to be built to make a statement. But the statement that will be made is not what Haman expects. All right, next scene. Scene one of chapter six opens up in the king's bedroom. Chapter six is the turning point in the book of Esther, which is why I had Rob read the entire chapter. It's in this chapter where we see the greatest irony and reversal take place. Something happens that is beyond human agency and human planning. First, the king can't sleep. We have no idea why he can't sleep. It just so happens, using air quotes again, it just so happens that he can't sleep. And what do some people do when they can't sleep? They read a book. Or in the case of the king, he calls one of his servants and says to the servant, hey, could you read me a book? Hours before Mordecai is to be impaled, a servant reads to the king from the book of memorable deeds. Just a book and said memorable deeds on the cover. This book is meant to chronicle the good deeds done by the people of Susa. The book also exists to ensure that when good deeds are done, the reward for the good deed is recorded. It's, it's basically a way for the king to, to keep up morale within, the, within his kingdom. And it so happens, again, air quotes, it so happens that the book that was pulled, because there's more than one book. And the page that was read included the story of how Mordecai, the Jew, saved the life of the king. Now you might remember that in chapter 2, Mordecai overhears a plot to assassinate the king. Mordecai reports the plot. The perpetrators were arrested and dealt with. And Mordecai's good deed was written down. And I said we would revisit that moment, and we're revisiting it right here. And the king is reminded of Mordecai's loyalty. The king rightly asks, after he hears this story from his servant, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended to him said, nothing has been done for him. So hard stop for a moment here. Let's look at this. What we are witnessing is not a string of coincidences. The king's inability to sleep is not a coincidence. The book that was pulled is not a coincidence. The specific deed that was read on that specific page was not a coincidence. All the actions of men, we see the hand of God at work. Here is another providence of God, which is also the development of the greatest irony in the book of Esther. The king realizes something needs to be done for Mordecai. Like, he saved my life. Like, we didn't do anything for him, we got to rectify that right now. And the king realizes this, right? Because the king does not think for himself, right? He asks his servant if one of his advisors are in the area, in the court. That's what it says in Holy Scripture. As the king asks the question to his servant, like, who's in the area? Who can I talk to? Who do you think is beginning to walk into the palace? Boo, it's right. Our good friend, Haman. Oh, this is getting juicy. Haman wants to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai, and the king wants to talk to Haman about honoring Mordecai. Like, woo! I mean, where's the movie for this? Sign me up. And man, listen to this juicy exchange between the king and Haman. The king asks Haman the following question. And again, Haman has no idea. He, doesn't, he doesn't, doesn't know the context of what the question is, right? He's just coming to the king. king's got a question. He says, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Notice the king does not mention a name. Just like Haman never mentioned that it was the Jews he was trying to destroy. So the king doesn't mention a name. And then Haman responds thinking that the king was talking about him, right? Like the king's like, I'm going to honor someone today. What do I do? And Haman's like, it's gonna be me. It's gonna be me. Like a little kid with a bunch of candy, look at this. So Haman's response to the king is over the top. It's over the top. You just can't make this up. Here's what Haman wants for himself he wants to wear the royal robes, right? The robes that the king wore, he now wants to wear. Not only that, he wants to ride on the king's horse. So he wants to look like the king. He wants to travel like the king. And not only that, he wants to be trotted around the city of Susa as if he was the king. And not only that, he wants to be led by noble officials. And not only that, he wants these officials, as he's being trotted around the kingdom, to say this, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman wants to be equal with the king. And it's this, like, this is his opportunity. Right? Again, another insight into his wicked heart, though. His wicked heart desires more than being second in command. And nowhere is there more comedic relief to our story than right here. Read this in Esther 6, verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse. As you have said... And do so to Mordecai the Jew. And if I'm Haman, like, your heart just drops. You're just like, what? You have got to be kidding me. Leave out nothing. I mean, this is probably the one place where the king actually gives a command. Leave out nothing. Make sure you do it. Follow these orders, Haman. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Like, what a reversal. In a matter of moments, the haughty are brought low and the righteous are exalted. Haman is humiliated and Mordecai is rewarded for his righteous deed of saving the king. As the curtain falls on scene one of chapter six, the stage crew in the back, right, brings out the horse The curtains come up for the next scene with Mordecai riding high in the saddle and Haman holding the lead rope. (laughs) Just trying to picture in my head what a stunning reversal. And if you were watching this in a play, this is the point where you're just laughing. You're like, no way, no way. Oh yeah, way, way. The last scene of chapter 6 gives us another indicator into the providence of God. In humiliation, Haman goes home and tells his wife everything. His wife, who does not know God, provides one of the most insightful statements in the entire book. A person who does not follow God says this. If Mordecai, he's talking to his husband. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, the one that you're trying to murder, is one of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. She says, honey, this is a battle you are not going to win, right? I've heard about the God of the Jews. I've heard their stories of deliverance. It's clear God is with them. God is with Mordecai. And it's, it is enlightening to see that a person who does not follow God, who sees things so clearly, at least in this moment, The final scene of Esther 6 is short, but it makes another providential point. God is bigger than the current circumstances, and God is providentially at work in all circumstances. When God is at work in and around the lives of those who follow him, the process and results are for the good of those who follow God. I'm going to take the final scene of chapter 7 as one. It brings together everything we've seen in chapters 5 and chapter 6. Haman has an obligation to fulfill, right? Got that second, one, that second feast that they need to go to. And remember, the king still does not know what has been bothering Esther, right? Chapter 6 is like this, this break to explain something else, and the king still doesn't know what's bothering Esther. He's about to find out. For the third time, the king wants to hear from Esther, and he'll give half of the kingdom to her. And that's what he says again. The king is essentially begging to hear from her, which is another irony in our story. Here's what he says. If I found favor, this is um, Esther talking. If I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted, granted to me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold... I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. I mean, destroyed, killed, annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would be silent. I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Esther, I mean, truly knows how to talk to King Eshuerus, she really does. She even says that if Haman were to make all the Jews slaves, she would go about her business. But the destruction of the people of God is crossing a red line. The king now knows that Mordecai, who was honored by the king, is a Jew. He now knows Esther is a Jew. And then Esther says, Haman is attempting to destroy all the Jews. The king becomes angry at Haman and walks away to kind of collect his thoughts. He hears this from Esther, and all of a sudden it's like, "We well, didn't see that coming, and he goes to his garden, right? Now, before I continue to retell our story, I want to ask you a question. In what ways have you seen the providence of God in your own life? We, we've been seeing it in Esther over and over and over and over. It continues, but we've got to eventually point the question to ourselves, Right? I mean, take a moment to reflect on the road that brought you here this morning. Not the physical road, but the road in your life, right? That brought you here this morning. I want you to see what God is doing, right? It does not matter if your cup of faith is filled to the top. It does not matter if you do or do not do all the Christian things. If you are part of God's people, he has been at work in your life He's been at work. And we got to see it. We got to acknowledge it. I want you to remember what God has done for you. I want you to celebrate how he has cared for you just as we've seen how he has cared for and provided for his people in the book of Esther. The doctrine of providence, and I said this at the very beginning, the doctrine of the providence of God is not a theological doctrine to be studied in a systematic theology book. It's there, yes, we learn about it, yes, that's all great. But really, in reality, it's to be celebrated because how the providence of God impacts your everyday life. God is at work, Christian. Celebrate it. Now, a few minutes ago, I'd asked you to put a pin in two moments of our story because we've got to revisit them. The first was when Mordecai would not bow to Haman for the second time. But now check this out. In chapter 7, as the king is walking back into the room, so he left, he got the information, couldn't believe it, left. Now as he's walking back into the room, Haman receives some type of Holy Spirit push, and he falls into Esther. He trips over the couch, and he falls into Esther. Uh, One early church father said it was the angel Gabriel who who pushed Haman (laughs) into Esther. Now it looks like Haman is going... After Esther, he's attacking the queen. What is interesting about verse 8 of chapter 7 is that it is written in the Hebrew in such a way to mimic and remind you that Mordecai did not bow to Haman. But here, Haman is now bowing to a Jew, Esther. Another reversal. We don't see this clearly in the English. When we get into the Hebrew, it makes it very clear. Another twist of irony in reversal of fortunes. I also told you, to put a pin in the moment, Haman created a, a, this gaudy gallows, 50 cubic feet high. I guess cubic is not feet, but 50 cubics high, right? Really tall. Well, instead of Mordecai being made the spectacle, Haman is the one who becomes the spectacle, which is the last of several reversals in today's story. Well, the book of Esther is turning out to be kind of a comedic drama, right? But very real. These are real events that happened in real time. And they're meant to show us that God is at work. The reality is that God was at work to preserve his people. And God used Mordecai. He used Haman. He used Esther. He used King Ashuerus to accomplish his purposes and goals. As we've been looking at this book, I, I hope your vision of God has increased, right? God did all that. Those weren't coincidences. God did all that. And if he did all that, what's he doing right now? Part of the problem is that we have a puny vision of who God is. And it needs to get bigger. And I'm hoping and I'm praying that as we've been looking at the providence of God in the book of Esther, your vision of God has been growing. I hope you've seen how God is at work in your life for your good and for his glory. Let's pray.